0: Boys and girls, your attention, please. Here is your group, Henry Delgado and the
1: stage. stage, 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 stage. For a muse, an for you, dance, march. If you like to dance, very well. And then smoke a cigarette. And put
0: in wait
1: and a Cáscara de plátano oh,
0: oh, Pretty
1: now, listen to me, to me,
0: me, me, let me, on, baby. Come on, me, Come on,
1: me, me, Ladies and gentlemen, and all of you interterrestrial, illegal aliens out there, Benny McKay checking in, September 15th, my birthday today, 33 years old, enjoying my day. This one I recorded with Mr. John Witzig, a really nice guy and a guy with an amazing body of work, incredible surf photos of the late 60s of my personal hero, George Greeno, Bob McTavish. There's just too many, too many names to name. Like he was just there at the epicenter of the explosion of the shortboard revolution all the way through to editing numerous magazines and being a founder of Tracks magazine. So this guy is unreal. Jump on, give him a follow on Instagram because his stories are awesome. that go along with his photos and yeah, I just had an unreal time. And, you know, it always astounds me when you sit down with these guys and there's no ego, he's just a really humble, incredible guy. And, yeah, I just, I'm so stoked to be doing this podcast because I'm having the opportunity to sit down with the way I look at it, the demigods of the the surf industry. And, And, you know, quite often they're allowing me access to sit down with them and have a chat for an hour and say, John, I know that you actually just had a bushfire running through your house so i'm really sorry to hear about that mate and yeah i mean i'm a chibi by trade so more than happy to come down and, and help you do some work if you if you have any damage mate also john wrote in his post say so this is only super recent so i went down it would be about a week and a half ago to record the podcast when i had had a week off work there was a bushfire that came through i guess it was like a, a couple of days ago So John put up on his Instagram, and and, and you can see the photos. The fire came super close to his house, but he was crediting the rural fire service. So, you know, there's these unsung heroes that, you know, that obviously rescued John's house, but I guess it's just a bit of a call to arms that, you know... From my previous discussions with environmental issues, uh, global warming is getting more and more obvious. So, you know, it it really is an important time that we sort of band together, work together, support our local community, uh, look at ways to be more sustainable as individuals, um, but also join your local rural fire brigade service. I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to go and join. There's actually a, a rural fire service just up the road from my house. But I'm going to jump on board with it and you know this really is uh, podcast is about about supporting your local community but also supporting each other and trying to create sustainable practices and yeah that, that's what it's all about for me so yeah John you continue to inspire me with your existing body of work but all the way up even till now you know I'm, I'm going to go and join a raw Fire Service based on that post that you put up so I appreciate everything you do appreciate your time And I appreciate all my listeners for checking in. So please like, share it with your mates, rate and review the podcast, and thanks heaps for listening in. So, we're sitting down here with Mr. John Witzig. John, thank you for inviting me down and welcome to Local Heroes Podcast. Pleasure. So, mate, where do I start? I mean, I've, I've been following you for quite a few years on the Instagram and just admiring all of the amazing surf photography that you've put up from what we would, we would probably describe as the golden era of surfing. A lot of those iconic and amazing photos that we see from from that period, a lot of those photos you captured. And I've just always been astonished at a lot of those amazing photos. And I think the surf industry and surf culture, a lot of us sort of younger people that weren't there can appreciate and and admire that period of time because of yourself and people like you capturing on photo. And, you know, obviously other guys with surf movies and that type of thing, but that, that media... I think we have such a yearning for that now to sort of go back to that and, and appreciate that simplicity and, um, and admire it. And so that's what I've been doing for the last few years. And I've been thinking, oh, I really want to sit down with John and have a chat with him and, and sort of talk to him about his, his process and, and about that period. So, yeah, thank you for in short, for for giving me some time to sit down with you and have a chat and for putting out all that that beautiful information. I think with Instagram, it's very much about photos, but you're also putting up a story as well and and you're putting in a lot of detail about that period as well. So really talking about the photo and and putting that information with the Instagram as well, which I think is great, and what a lot of people don't do these days. So I just want to say that I'm grateful that you're doing it and, and I really... Admire your work, and i 'm sure a lot of people do and, and have and for young people like myself, we really can reflect on that and,
0: and really enjoy it. you know I find it interesting that young people are as interested as they apparently are, and I get quite a good response to uh, to those posts and as regards sort of the words and the pictures, I was never a photographer, really. I was an editor of a magazine I edited several magazines and Uh, so it's been always a combination of words and pictures for me that interests me, and so that's why basically I'm just doing what I've always done. But I suppose I was a photojournalist, but I was never a photographer, and my period, if you like, covers about 15 years, from the mid-1960s to the late 1970s, and then I actually had to go and get a real job (laughs) and earn some money, because there was no money in, in the surfing magazines in those days. And it was all so amateur. And in a way, uh, that's something now that I value when I look back at it. I think that we made it up as we went along. No one I knew was trained in anything. Not a single one of us was trained. We just did it. did the magazines, took pictures, um, wrote stories, often very badly, but nevertheless, <laughs> we learned as we went along.
1: Yeah, so I guess the... the... The question is to, to begin then, so where did it sort of start, where did your passion for, for surfing sort of initiate and when did you sort of realise that that's what you wanted to do for, for, you know, like you
0: said, a decade and a half of, of your life? It was all a bit of an accident, it sort of happened to me rather than, um, I never made any particular decisions about any of it, it just sort of happened. But my family had had a house at Whale Beach, a holiday house from when I was two years old, so I... I mean, we were only there at holiday times, but as soon as I got out of school and that sort of thing, that was where I headed for sure. And I knew probably the guy, guy called Ron Perrett, who was a leading surf photographer in Sydney at the time. And um, he was a friend of mine, and he just introduced me to the dark room. He loaned me his, his uh, camera and a lens one day, and I shot the first surfing pictures, and it happened to be of Nat Young at Collaroy, And... So, so I was off, off to quite a good start. <laughs> I got into photography, I suppose, through surfing, through surfing photography. It just looks so easy to set up a lens on the beach and take some pictures, and quite frankly, it is easy. Um, but it's pretty boring too. I got an Akonis underwater camera fairly early in the... I don't know exactly when. Um, later 60s. And I enjoyed uh, shooting water photographs, even though my success rate was unbelievably low. I mean, you really had to be, be almost lucky to get good pictures with Naconis, or you had to go to places where, like a reef break, where it broke consistently so that you could actually... In the same it spot. Itself. Yeah, because mm. on beach breaks, it was just a complete waste of time. I wasted a lot of time, but it it, I don't think a good picture came out of mm-hmm. any of that wasting of time. Mm-hmm. But no, it was just all, it was sort of an accident. I went from... Shooting some surfing pictures, to getting a story published, to getting more stories published, to then um, Bob Evans, who ran a magazine called Surfing World, what still exists. Um, he let me edit an issue in mid nineteen sixty six, and uh, then I've I, always been a bit of a magazine junkie, and uh, so that was that was really good fun. Editing a magazine is very good fun. You get to dictate the whole bloody thing. <laughs> So I,
1: I I noticed as well that you also share a lot of pictures of the architecture and building and design. You also discuss a lot of building projects that you partook in or that you were involved in. So that seems like that was a big part of that period as well. It wasn't just surfing. It was also the culture of photojournalism sort of aspect of it. So a lot of it's, you know, guys just mulling around old cars or, or you know, design or building and that type of thing as well. So was that your intention back then, to capture a little bit of that, um, not just the surfing, but also the, the period and the, and the era?
0: I think I was self-obsessed. I just covered myself. Basically, I was I was documenting my story. And in surfing, I had some very good friends, some really interesting friends, you know, particularly in the 60s, people like Nat Young, Bob McTavish, George Greeno, and on, Dead Spencer, um, so that was, that was really good. But I studied architecture, I went to university, and so it was always a, a preoccupation. I did it very my university degrees very haphazardly. I don't think I ever did more than two years in a row, and then I'd leave, and then I'd come back, and then I'd fail. and It was a shambles, but it was an obsession, and it still remains an obsession. I think it was a shit way to earn a living, so I never did. Uh, no, I think I did two jobs for other people and hated it. I had nightmares about things falling down. But I've done four houses for myself. The first one, which uh, was a little house at Angari, which I started in 1972, and that one I actually, I mean, with help, but I actually built it myself. Uh, All the others I definitely began to realise I didn't like doing carpentry, and I couldn't do it well enough. So um, I I found it very frustrating. But thinking of design, thinking of shapes and, and spaces, that I think I can still do
1: yeah, well, my my background is um, I started out as a carpenter, and I had a real lack of desire for what we were building for contemporary design. So I was building resorts in Port Douglas up in North Queensland and bridges and um, a lot of concrete structures, which I kind of I really do enjoy that you know the the the, the idea of something, but. It's really hard as a carpenter or, or as a builder to try and be able to find that magic, you know, with design and, and um, be able to put something together that's um, unique or special. And I found personally that the greatest joy that I've gotten out of any kind of build or construction is from collecting materials that are destined for the landfill. So, uh, you know, using stuff that is otherwise going to be thrown out, mm. So as a carpenter, you know, I'm a bit like a bed. you know, on, if I'm working on a job site, I'm collecting bits and pieces and, and putting it together. But I built a little timber cabin in our backyard and a, a lot of it is built from um, materials that were that were either being discarded or, you know, a lot of casement windows that are, you know, for, for sale on, um, say, gum tree or whatever. But that's where I've really found the sort of the magic or, the beauty of, of design and construction is doing stuff for myself and um and using stuff that that is otherwise destined for the for landfill.
0: Well, you just described my house at Angari perfectly. Mm. I pulled down the police station house in Yamba for not got a, a in a, a quote of nothing for it, and a lot of the local kids, the surfers, helped me pull it down. They left before all the hard work really serious, how like denailing all the hardwood mm. started, but they were great, and uh, so that's where I got the materials for. Uh, for the House too. And, yeah, that's very satisfying to turn something that otherwise will be discarded into something that's, that's mm. good. And I think that the sense of, um, of pride in it is un- unrivaled, I reckon.
1: Well, I think you're, you're saying as, as a photojournalist as well and, and having an interest in words, it's kind of the narrative of that timber or the narrative, the story of, of that that piece, whatever it is that you've got, you know, say, with me my cabin, every single sort of piece of that build has got a story. <laughs> yes. You know,
0: yeah.
1: and even we, we've even gone as far as my wife Lily's a, a a tattoo artist, and she's an artist, so you know she wanted a train carriage. You know, so we we got onto a train carriage. We've just put it in the backyard, and we're going to sort of tidy that up and clean it up. But it's it's these these nice pieces that that have stories, that have a narrative that you can tell a, a story about.
0: You know, they've all had lives, haven't they? Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found um, right towards the end of. Uh, wasn't told I, I think I took six years to not finish the house at Anggawiri, and then then I sold it because I, I needed the money. But I found uh, it was a what was it? It was a Roman Catholic um, a nunnery or something like that up up the river in the Clarence a little bit, and it was all being pulled down. And these magnificent pine boards, I swear they were that wide, mm. and I, they were all painted. I just turned them turned them around, and mm. it was just. Mm. It was so beautiful, Mm. and uh, that just gave me so much pleasure to to find that material for a start and Mm. then to use it well.
1: Yep. And so I guess, I I don't know really how to sort of put this exactly, but I'll I'll try my best. There's a real magic about the 60s and, and the 70s and that sort of era of time, sort of younger people that weren't there to enjoy it. We kind of we look back on it as if it was magic, you know, it's a simpler time. It was a more beautiful time. Was that something that you were conscious of back then, do you think? Or, or is it something that you reflect on now and go, oh, wow, you know?
0: No, I think we were aware of it. Um, for a start, you know, a, surfing in Sydney in the the mid-1960s uh, could be quite crowded, actually. But when you got away to the north coast or to the south coast or wherever, Western Australia, um, I mean, there were no people. There were no other surfers. You come. I've come, came to Angari in the mid '60s and uh, didn't see another surfer over two or three days. You know, and that was not unusual. And yeah, we appreciated that for sure. I don't think we could have ever anticipated what would happen, and and how crowded it would get, and how sort of intolerable it must be. I can't imagine how people go out at Superbank and the Gold Coast and there's a thousand people out there. I mean. Fuck. Mm.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I lived on the Gold Coast for about three or four years in my 20s. And yeah, exactly what you said, I was trying to teach myself to surf because I started surfing late because I was from far north Queensland where there's no waves. So trying to get in there and trying to compete and you got Joel Parker and you know Mick Fanning sitting at the top of the rocks and then everybody else, the other thousand people spread out down below them. And, yeah, it's, it's very much a pecking order and very difficult to try and get onto anything, and it, it sucked. It really did. Yeah. Um, and, like you said, it, it's, it's not really surfing, is well, it? Well,
0: it's not my idea yeah, of surfing. it doesn't of, make a lot of sense. And so I yeah. think that my generation, first, we were so fortunate, but I think we really did appreciate it too, and uh, we were the first generation of surfers who began to really travel around quite a lot because after the Second World War... Um, Everything was really pretty uh, um, well, it wasn't depressed, but certainly there was no sort of you know great economic miracle for quite some time, and so cars weren't readily available um, to kids anyway until I reckon the early 60s, and then suddenly it, it sort of broke open a bit, and that meant that uh, it wasn't just the fact that. There was sort of a spirit of rebellion in the air, which there absolutely was in the 60s, and that was tell tell the government to get stuffed, or whatever authority, uh, tell them to get stuffed. But it was also the ability to get around. And I think most of us were fairly respectful of of nature and of um, the environment, and uh, so I don't think we really were as badly behaved as people used to think we were.
1: So there was a real rebellion, or like a a bit of a a punk nation, because... We kind of perceive a surfer now as, when I say we, I mean society. It's very accepted. Yeah, so, so back then it was more of a, a rebellion, so people culturally or society kind of perceived. Was there a different perception back then? Oh, I absolutely. You know,
0: um, dull, you know, dull bludging, dope smoking, that was the reputation we had, which, which quite frankly wasn't particularly deserved. You know, any group of society will have people who do all of those things. And I don't think surfers were too much different to the rest of us. But um, we certainly had that reputation. Yeah, very, very badly received. Mm.
1: <laughs> you were innovating. You guys were sort of the, the early kind of um, innovators. Was there somebody or, or people that stood out to you that, were in, like, that inspired you or that kind of sort of helped sort of guide you in, in that period? Was there anyone that you looked up to or,
0: like, creative
1: people, photographers?
0: Oh, I mean, lots and lots of people, You're yeah, sure. I took, uh, took influence from wherever I, I saw it. I used to, um, uh, because I was sort of a magazine obsessive, I used to get some European magazines and used to get life from um, America. And, I mean, the standard of uh, production, apart from the, f- the fantastic photographs, were just way ahead of anything that was being done in Australia. And, I mean, that was, to me, really obvious. It was so clear. So when I got a chance at doing an issue of Surfing World um, I tried to just borrow the um, lessons that I'd seen in other publications and certainly photographers and even editors. There was uh, an editor of a, one of the US editors of Guide magazine um, I forgot his name, doesn't matter. He, he was the best editor that I ever saw. Bill Cleary his name was and I think he was inspiring and I tried to contact a few people, photographers particularly, years and years later to tell them how inspiring their work had been to me and I tried to find Bill Clear and he died a few months before, which was really a shit because I would have liked to have told him that he was really important to me. Yeah, wow. Um, but people were so helpful. Um, that was my, you know, my experience with doing magazines early on. People were really happy to give you the benefit of their their talents and their experience. I mean, it was great. People were very generous to me anyway.
1: Yeah, and I guess we can probably talk about a bit of the the shift and the comparison between then and now. But I guess I'm just keen to sort of stay in that era for a little while. So I guess my biggest inspiration or, you know, I, I shape surfboards, I, I manufacture sort of hand-shaped surfboards you know that's sort of coming back in it's coming back around in vogue I suppose you can say and I mean George Greeno was just such a is such a inspiration in terms of of his innovation and design and I think also because of his shyness and his aloofness and the fact that he's a little bit mysterious and he doesn't do a lot of uh a lot of the, the the promo and that sort of thing as well can do any of it yeah <laughs> Not yeah these days yeah and I, I think that's you know probably makes him a little more interesting too cuz he's you know he's sort of hiding a little bit you know and um but can you can you is there anything that you could sort of bestow upon us about george back in those
0: days well he wasn't hadn't been burnt by uh, people using and abusing him in pub- publications in the early days i mean i think i wrote the first story about him um, and uh, because he'd come from um, Santa Barbara in California, but really not um, his reputation hadn't spread beyond Santa Barbara. And I remember uh, uh, a photographer called Leroy Granis, uh, who was very famous in California, slight, I mean, about a half a generation older than me. And um, when I was writing stuff, and lauding George Greenhouse's influence in Australia and the importance that he had in the short revolution here. And Granis said, what can you learn from a mat rider? And it was just such a, a perfectly stupid American response, you know. They were idiots, complete idiots. That guy...
1: So you feel like they overlooked him a lot?
0: Totally. I Mm -hmm. mean, well, no, a whole lot of them never even heard of him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just a local, you know, you use the term local hero. Mm -hmm. He was, Mm -hmm. had a great local reputation around Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And people who who saw him surf knew what he could do. He could surf a mat better than most people could surf surfboards. Mm -hmm. Brilliant at it. Absolutely Mm -hmm. brilliant at it.
1: Yeah, and and we we are still fixed in that state of um, if you're a surfer or if you're a kite surfer or if you're a boogie boarder or, you kind of stay in your lane a bit, whereas even back then, George was just breaking all notions of, of everything and, like, he was getting out on surf mats or, you know, kneeboards or kite surfers, whatever. I mean, he, he was just a huge part in, of innovation across the board of just a waterman, you know.
0: He was remarkable, honestly. Mm. Um, I saw, saw quite a bit of him through the mid-'60s, I suppose, from maybe 65 um, through to the later 60s anyway. And, uh, I mean, an absolutely fascinating character. Totally sort of obsessive and uh, he's very difficult to get a word in if George is talking. (laughs) And he just goes on and on and on and on and on. But he's remarkable, he's fascinating. Yeah, one of, uh, I mean, I really resent the word legend because I think it's, it's just been so misused. It doesn't mean anything anymore. But if there was one person I think it could happily sit with, it would be George.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I think, um, like I was just saying before, that introversion kind of makes him all the more sort of fascinating, I think, you know, if if we reflect back and look at everything he did and, and all the different designs and, and how it, a lot of those designs are coming back into vogue as well. You know, the the edge board and that type of thing has really sort of made a bit of a return. And
0: yeah.
1: um, so there's a lot of things that got overlooked, I feel like, in around the 70s. I guess when you started tracks and that sort of stuff, there was a massive evolution. There was a massive change in, in board design and, you know, the the length of boards, the, the shape of boards, the, the fins on the – like everything was sort of – Nineteen seventy was like a huge sort of turning point, don't you think?
0: Uh, I reckon it started earlier than that. I think mm. nineteen sixty-seven is really the beginnings, mm. the, the the real beginnings of it. And mm. yet, it had. I mean, I remember talking to, particularly talking to to Nat and Bob McTavish in sixty mid sixty-six, mm. and the things they were talking about then, quite frankly, were just things that led on to the shortboard revolution. So mm-hmm. I think it was continuing. Yes. Now there yep. may have been mm. periods where. Really dramatic things happened. Yeah, but,
1: big sort of cuts, like feet came off boards and that type of thing.
0: But I mean, mm. that happened way mm. ahead of, way earlier than 1970. Yeah, 70 boards had got so short in the when the world championships were on down in Victoria in the final. All the Australians were on on two little boards. Mm. No midget probably wasn't, but the rest of them were. Mm. Um, Nat borrowed a board from a friend of mine that <laughs> he'd never surfed at all for the final, for heaven's sake, because he needed something to run across some sort of flat. Flat spots. Mm. Um, It shows you Nat could ride a door. But nevertheless, um, no, it really, I don't see 70 as being particularly dramatic. But then I was not particularly interested in surfboard design. I was interested in the surfing that resulted from it, but not in the design itself. And everyone I knew was obsessed about it. And quite frankly, they were really boring. (laughs) (laughs) They never talked about anything else. That's um that's funny you say that. And I, I, I did have
1: a um, question too. I was wondering because you were, you were so heavily involved in architecture, in buildings, th- did you ever get in and, and get involved in shaping boards or anything like that or that was never of interest to you? You no had so interest. many, you no had Bob well, and so absolutely. many yeah, absolutely. talented people no, no. around you, you never really <laughs> had to think about it. <laughs> I, used, I
0: used to be given old, old boards sometimes or I had boards shaped by uh, some really good people because they were friends of mine. Mm. no no not the least interested zero interest yeah (laughs) no i sanded boards for a while and that was a shit job yeah that's the worst job (laughs) really a shit job
1: yes
0: (laughs) but if someone had shaped a board for me then someone had glassed it for me i sort of had to at least make a contribution do something do something yeah yeah sanding's
1: probably the the least sort of fun aspect of of board building. Oh, but a lot of people say they're board builders these days and, you know, they're putting uh, something through a CNC machine. Yeah. They're sort of lightly sanding it and then they're passing it off to a glass factory and they're saying that they're a board builder and I think that's a bit of a cop-out too. Well, it's you very know? different. It's mm. so
0: different. Um, uh, I think my brother mentioned not long ago when having some sort of a conversation about something that back in our day, the, all the best surfers used to shape their own boards. mm all of them. Mm. You know, yeah. MP, MR. Mm. Well, going back before them, mm-hmm. you know, McTavish people like McTavish, and, Nat, and Ted Spencer, George, mm. Wayne Lynch. Mm. All those people made their own boards. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about the Americans in that same period of time mm. because I, while well, I got there occasionally, I didn't get there much. So my knowledge and my my archive of pictures, for that matter, is very uneven, and it doesn't—it doesn't cover the whole range. The whole it doesn't tell. It never tells the whole story. It doesn't tell the story. It tells a story, and that's really—I I, mean—I I made a joke before about just documenting my own life, whether it was in doing magazines or whether going on a surfing trip or whether it was building a house. But it sort of—that's really what it was like. So I've got pictures of my friends surfing. Really, that's about it. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Occasionally, uh, when I got somewhere else or a major competition, I managed to pick up a few other, you know, bits and pieces.
1: So, who was your favourite person to to shoot?
0: Ooh. Uh, I don't think I had a favourite person to or shoot. Do you,
1: do you have like a, fa- a memory of a, of a certain period of time? You know, a certain area. You know, is it... okay.
0: Well, there's a break called Spooky, which is just to the north of uh, Angari. It's It's there is a beach, but. The break at Spooky is just where the reef just turn, the rocks turn around the corner, and it's just it's the perfect break to shoot with a coneus because you can just sit in exactly the same spot. In I think nineteen seventy three, I shot a roll there and got two tracks covers out of one roll, and about three other photographs. I mean, I never got within cooey of that ever again, ever.
1: You just had that magic, that magic so day. It was perfect.
0: Mm. I mean, it was easy. I, <laughs> One of the covers, which is, you know, it's, it's a, a joke really, but I obviously went down to Sydney with this role and I used to use the Trax Darkroom because um, I only uh, stuck around for the first couple of years, but they let me use the Darkroom and I processed this roll of film. And it was obvious it was really good. And Albie Felsen picked a picture for the cover, which he put, you know, then we printed it on. Three frames along, the same surfer in almost exactly the same position and such a better picture. There must have been water over the lens of the first one. And it was, you know, that. when I sort of say that things were a bit haphazard, they really were, you know, mm. it was all... Mm.
1: It's like the first take, yep, that's it. The, the first decision is the first one. There's no, oh, we'll go back and look at the anything else or, or consider nope that's it okay we're doing that move on it was on.
0: ridiculous <laughs> it was so foolish with hindsight yeah. but it, it gave me the story you know Yeah. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. so um you were talking about a couple of your cameras would you prefer to have been shooting from the water or on the beach what was your sort of preference
0: um oh shooting from the water absolutely became my preference just because it's really boring standing on the beach mm. with a long lens mm you know you can certainly you know you get a higher much higher rate of useful pictures much much higher rate but i just got jack of it to tell you the truth i got sick of it
1: and and did that um influence your surfing i mean obviously you got so many uh, amazing photos over you know that sort of 15 20 year period did that mean that you got to you missed out on a lot of good sessions as well or would you would you shoot or surf before surf after or how would you sort of work that generally oh, just
0: all of the above, you know, sometimes I missed out entirely and uh, sometimes um, I made sure that uh, uh, I did okay, though I got, you know, got some waves. remember being at Noosa, at National Park at Noosa, one of the very early first times I went up there, probably 965. And I left my camera um, with the lens on it, set up just on the parking area there, and I went and had a surf. When I came in, the back of the camera was open, the film, film was pulled out.
1: Oh, like someone had taken the film? No,
0: someone had just destroyed it.
1: Oh, uh, wow, because they didn't want people to know about National exactly. Park? or yeah.
0: It was still a secret spot.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that just... It's almost insane to think that National Park was a secret spot. I mean, it was.
0: <laughs> in Let me tell in, you in this plans. day and age, you know? And I respected that. <laughs> the first story I published from the first pictures I took up there, um, I called the story Rincon is where you find it and didn't identify where... Um, the break was at all.
1: So it was the secret. It was a secret location. It was, yeah. Mm. I mean,
0: obviously the word was getting out amongst Brisbane surfers, but there were much far fewer of them, you know, than, for example, a Sydney. If that break had been two hours north of Sydney, you know, it would have taken a quarter of an hour for the world to find it. But mm. it took took quite some time before uh, um, Noosa got crowds, mm. and yeah. I was so lucky to. To be going there at that time, it was fantastic. It was so good.
1: Oh, it would have been unreal, yeah. for sure. Tea Tree and um, National Park are just, you know, amazing waves. Yeah. And even, yeah. like, I live on the Sunshine Coast now, but I avoid going there once again just because of the crowds, mm. you know, and trying to get a park and, <laughs> and all of those things. So I'll, I'll go and find a little secret beach break and try and get a wave to myself or with a couple of mates, you know, yeah. as opposed to... to engaging in a lot of that um it's almost preposterous you know
0: (laughs) i (laughs) think it's entirely preposterous (laughs) i I can't imagine how it's fun you know i don't Mm. don't understand it Well, like it there's there's the bit of a pecking
1: order and there's some some guys that are really good board builders that are probably have a bit of um you know the same as joel parker or mick fanning or those sort of top dogs at snapper you know there's Mm. a it, it's good. It's probably a lot
0: of fun for those guys that are, that are on top, but for everyone else, you know, we just gotta. You I'm know. with you. I would rather. I mean, mm. but even um, say by I sold my Angary house, I think 79, 78, 79. Um, even then, I would rather go down the back beach at Angary mm. uh, and just surf a beach break down there because there used to be quite good, quite good banks there occasionally. Mm. Than going to the point with a crew of just to me. That wasn't fun. It mm. just wasn't fun. And I used to be, be able to get waves too, mm. you know? Yeah. I had a certain credibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I
1: surfed Angari a few months ago now, but there was only, I guess the weekday is the secret. You get down there on a weekday if you can and... Um, Maybe four or five guys out, you know, yeah. and you can have a good time, yeah. Yeah, you just got to jag it, I guess. Yeah. You've got to be in it to win it. and other
0: people have told me the same mm. thing, and yeah. I, I've expressed the prize, because I've gone down there mm. when there's been good swell. Yeah. And it's and pumping, absolutely. yeah. It's absurd. There's
1: people everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Look, I'd, I'd prefer to go out when it's not as good and it's
0: quiet, you know, but each to his own, you know. I used to surf a mat, mainly, I suppose, just... Um, influenced by George, but in crappy ways, a mat was much more fun um, mm. to me than, than, uh, and even on good ways, it could be, you could have really have fun on a mat if you got, you know, got going on it. you ever seen footage of George surfing his mat? Oh,
1: yeah, 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 insane, incredible. He is. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah no, he's unreal and just so radical and, I mean, the first board that I ever shaped was a shark fin, single fin, you know, and it was sort of emulated or... or created it off of, you know, George Greeno's sort of board design. And, yeah, I I love that board. You know, it's a sort of mini Simmons, full nose, wide tail. But, yeah, it was sort of something that was similar to probably what George was making in the 60s. And um, like I said, I started surfing late, um, sort of in my early 20s. So I wasn't somebody that had grown up with surfing. Mm -hmm. And so I was hanging out with a lot of professional surfers on the Gold Coast and I was surfing boards the same as them you know little sort of five seven sort of pencil thin sort of CNC plain white boards and it wasn't until I shaped my first board and sort of um, it was resin tint and and a handmade fin and that type of thing that really changed changed my, my whole perception of surfing you know and then I really began to engage with it and understand it because you sort of I began to personalize it a bit and add my own character, my own artwork. And and um, the sunny coast, for example, it's not always great waves, you know. So I would, my obsession now is building boards that work in everything, whether it's one foot or if it's, you know, really good. But um, so, yeah, I can understand that, you know, the, the idea of the, the surfing mat or, or um, just trying to make something that's super functional, you know. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's mm. it's a lovely idea of, of how, when you start making your own surfboards... That's it, when it, it started it, for it, me. That's yeah. when it clicked, you know? That's wonderful. Mm. I mean, it's really, mm. it's really terrific. Mm. Uh, when you're talking about sort of a ride-anything board, um, I went to Europe in 1970, started in 1976, and I didn't know how long it was going to be away for, and I didn't really know much about the waves in France and Portugal. And uh, so Rodney Dahlberg is a New Zealander who's been around Bangari for uh, decades, um, Forty or more years, I think. Uh, he made me a ride anything board, so and you're saying well, it, you could. I surfed it in California in waves that big, and it was fun. And I went out at sunset on it, the first when I landed on the North Shore. And it didn't go all that well there. I'd have to admit it was very hard to get into a wave on it, mm. apart from anything else. And mm. it had a leg rope. At that stage, people weren't using leg ropes at sunset, so people looked at me. I think one of of the good Australian surfers looked at me and said, what are you doing out here?
1: (laughs) And so was that when the leg rope was tied to the fin? No. No? It had a plug?
0: Yeah, it had a plug. (laughs) But it was just, I mean, it was really funny. Yeah. Um, I promptly, it was, one of the reasons I was on the North Shore was I wanted to surf Sunset and it was an ambition that I've had for a long time. And I was, what, 33 and I figured i better do it, better do it now. And uh, so I got a, uh, Paul Nielsen sold me a Parish Sunset Board, which at those days were eight foot, and Parish was really the name for Sunset Boards then. And it was just, that was really fun. I surfed Sunset every single time it broke. So was that like a, that,
1: I'm trying to think about like what period that was in terms of board design, was that sort of the Jerry Lopez kind of single fin, like pin tail, sort of um, wide point
0: further forward? You're asking but, the wrong person, mm. of course. I haven't had a fucking clue. Well, that's a great response. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't interested. I actually prefer that response. <laughs> I wasn't interested. You know... Um, mm.
1: Yeah, it didn't matter. Did it, it catch did, waves? Didn't it?
0: There were a lot of there were a lot of pintails on the north shore mm. because you mm. know, I mean, they're surfing very big waves, and those boards mm. boards worked.
1: And that's what always yeah. sort of blew me out with board design is that those that design heavily influenced Australian board building, even though it didn't work. You know, it never like that design just doesn't work for for Aussie waves. But everybody was surfing those Jerry Lopez style pintail. Mm. Boards for such a long time, and then um, you know, obviously, it went into the twin fins, and they became more functional for for Aussie surfing. Well, you know? yeah, it wasn't
0: a, a, Aussie you know, waves, you know? A Lopez um, pintail isn't doesn't really work on beach breaks, no, <laughs> no, nah, nah. or or
1: points, you know, even Noosa or you know. But there's a lot of boards that were. Being manufactured uh, around that sort of, of design, you know. But so. it, was, it was like
0: when, um, and we went to California in 1966, and went, that's when Nat won the um, World Surfing Championships at San Diego. But America was up, absolutely obsessed with nose riding. Mm. Um, you know, there was a little bit of other stuff went on, but essentially what they prized above anything else was David Nui was we standing on the nose for 12 seconds or something like that. And the Americans were just so confident that uh, he'd win the World Surfing Championships and essentially Nat blew him out of the water and uh, Nat had it won before that because I think it was three different contests. I think Nat had it won before the final contest. Um, and it was the Americans were so insulted by this, mm. you know, completely insulted.
1: Mm. And that's that's an incredible time too because, I mean, really, we're at a point now where surfing... You know, you got obviously your, your longboard surfing, your shortboard surfing. There's there's kind of a lot of subcategories of hand shaped surfboards, and <laughs> you know, you know. So back then, though, it was all one and the same thing, and it was kind of trying to figure itself out as to, to what was what. You know.
0: Well, the surfboard manufacturers in California, when that won uh, that contest, were just freaking out because they had all this stock uh, was leading into summer. And they had all this stock they needed to sell. So they lent on people like John Severson at Surfer Magazine to basically not tell the surf, the shortboard story for another year. Yeah,
1: just hold fire. Another mm.
0: year. It was mm. 67. I don't remember what month it was in 67 before they finally did a shortboard story.
1: Unreal. <laughs>
0: it's disgraceful, though, isn't it?
1: It's wild, yeah. It's wild, yeah. That is. And to think that. Um, an individual or a group of people could control uh, information like that, that you, it just wouldn't fly in this day and age, you know. No, Everybody no. knows everything that everyone's doing yeah. within bloody seconds of it happening, you know. You can't <laughs> even imagine that, can you? No, no, it was just... I mean, it was so absurd. Let's put it off for a year. Yeah, let's put it off for a year. All <laughs> oh, right, okay, fine. And a few people did it. They put it off, you know. That's crazy. You can't even really, it's unfathomable, you know, yeah, it is, in this yeah. day and age. But it was,
0: it was, I thought it was unfathomable. Mm. My mouth isn't going to work. Mm. Unfathomable. It's <laughs> <laughs> a hard word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought it was that too mm. at the time. Obser- yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. really pissed mm. off about it.
1: Yep, yep. Well, I guess the Aussies um, gave them a bit of time to... To continue what they were doing anyway, and, and take oh, over definitely. maybe, you know, yeah. sli- it gave them the opportunity to to really innovate, you know. And you can't
0: you can't stop the tide either. No, that's it right. was going to happen, and mm. and eventually it did. And and what happened then was um, Australian surfing became, you know, the be all and end all for a considerable period of mm. time, which was really. Uh, Probably not very good for anybody, I suppose, but never, oh, good for the Australians because by then there was a little bit of money in it and some people were actually making something out of it.
1: Mm. So you spoke a little bit about Hawaii. I mean, what was Hawaii like in, you know, those early days?
0: Well, I went first in 66, but literally just for a, um, that was uh, a few days on the way to California. Then the end of 67... Uh, when I was editing a magazine called Surf International and um, they actually you know, paid for me to go over there uh, and I went with Nat, George Greeno, Bob McTavish, Ted Spencer and we went to Maui and got the all-time swell and that was when the radical V bottom boards that Nat and Bob McTavish were riding, they actually worked in that swell and my brother was the only cinematographer there, and I was the only stills photographer there, and Paul made a finale of his film The Hot Generation, which was then shown in California in, I think, mid-1967, and that essentially was the announcement of the shortboard thing Mm -hmm. really had happened, Mm -hmm. and it was happening, and the response was extraordinary, just Mm -hmm. amazing, and that's when um, I think Severson got a guy called Drew Campion to edit Surfer Magazine. I think Stevenson knew really, he didn't know what was going on on the beach much um, and Drew was absolutely you know, Cludian and uh, he, he's a picture of mine from Montreal Bay um, cut into the shape of a V-bottom board on the cover of Surfer Magazine, that was the shortboard story mm. and so it was mid-67 I think when it finally, finally hit.
1: Mm. And that's kind of interesting too, I mean because Hawaii in a lot of well it is the, the birthplace of surfing as far as we know it and they were the the Alayas which I know Tom Wagner was a really big sort of part of sort of bringing that back and and returning us back to the the Alaya surfboard was kind of a, a shorter finless type yeah. surfboard yeah. you know which the Hawaiians were surfing for hundreds of years prior to that so it's kind of interesting yeah. you know how we talk about uh revolutions and and how things changed and Yeah, originally, the Alaya surfboard was was a pretty short board. quite
0: short, yeah. Yeah. I've seen photographs of them. Mm. Also, I've seen... uh, Have you ever seen um, Nat's youngest son, Bryce, um, surfing in Alaya? Mm. Mm. I mean, he can surf anything. He's a Mm. bit like his... Yeah, these these guys are incredible and (laughs) they make it look easy. Bryce is (laughs) extraordinary. Mm. He's breathtakingly good, I think, really. Mm. Trax had a uh, little video that um, they publicised on, on Instagram, and then you could go to their website and have a look at it. And, I mean, they made the claim at the time, and this goes back a few months, that arguably Bryce was you know, the best surfer in the country right then. Mm. And the footage was just breathtaking.
1: Mm. Ah. When you see somebody surfing alternative surfboards, you know, I mean, it's really cool to see guys getting huge airs and surfing really aggressively and ripping the shit out of the face of a wave, but there's something really just beautiful about somebody that um that turns it into an art form you know and 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 makes it sort of beautiful you know and I think a lot of those that 60s sort of style of surfing is something that's um gaining popularity and traction again you know because it's not that aggressive competitive style of surfing Mm -hmm. it's that more laid back um more about walking the
0: board you know I'm just so and the culture, you know. There's room back. for all of these things mm. in surfing now. Mm. I mean, I just mm. think that's a huge, huge bonus, mm. that there's room for... And, and, I mean, I've seen footage of kids on boogie boards. They're doing astonishing things, mm. remarkable things on ways that surfboards wouldn't be able to get into. Mm. Um, just absurd sort of slabs breaking on bare rock. And they're, they're great. So, no, I think it's, it's, it's really terrific... Um, and that its value, that the fact that there's a place for for sort of everybody in it, that strikes me as being really a good thing. If you can, when you can pull that, that's really good. I find the hyper competitive thing pretty off, of putting for me, and I can't see the airs at all. But you know, I'm an old person, and that just had no part in the surfing that I grew up in and that I love. So, so, so when
1: do you think that kind of do you think that was a slow change, or do you think there was a certain period where that sort of really shifted from from the culture of laid back, because it, it almost it's a lifestyle of surfing, you know, and then it went sort of more towards, I think for for a long period in, into that hyper competitive. Yeah. I think just that was a
0: gradual, gradual process. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, but it was certainly. I mean, there were some some of the good surfers were so keen on, they were so pushing it. And that was still while I was around, so that's late 1970s. People mm. like Rabbit, uh, John Thompson, um, who else? Oh, Peter Townend, Ian Cairns, they were all absolutely, they wanted mm. Someone
1: wanted to be the best and everyone yeah, but wanted they to, also wanted mm. a
0: whole structure, a whole competitive structure. Mm. I mean, they also mm. thought great wealth would come their way. Mm. And, and it did to a few of them. Mm. But no, I, I, that sort of turned me off to some degree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see. I can look see what that. I grew up with, for heaven's sake. You know, mm. we had, you know, this this beautiful country, fairly empty of surfers, and with quite a lot of waves. And uh, I just loved going on the surfing trips. That was I like just sur- physical, physically surfing. But going on the surfing trips was such a good adventure. The adventure and of it was yeah. great. It was yeah, so much fun.
1: And that's what uh, still interests me and fascinates me about surfing. It's not about being part of. I mean I don't watch competitive surfing i don't um I don't particularly sort of follow any any of that aggressive momentum type stuff It's more of the adventure you know being able to hand hand make something I know with the social media there's like backyard shapers communities now and they're massive and people are making their own surfboards and they're helping each other out to 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 shape their own boards or if somebody's got questions and I think there is definitely like you said that's it's a turning back to people making their own boards and that's great and there is it's sort of broadening up so you've got your competitive surf and you've got your hand-shaped kind of retro board builders you've got this whole swag of different people and, and um I think that's a really good thing you know and I think competitive surfing did definitely shift shift the, the, the idea of, you know, the plain white surfboard, the thruster. Um, I mean, for, as a photographer, that must have been really sort of mundane or, or quite boring for you, or, or as, as a journalist rather as well. Was, was there a point for you where you're like, you know what, this isn't for me any anymore? Oh,
0: well, by the end of the 70s, it was a combination of really me needing to earn, earn a living. Mm. And um, I think about 1978 was when um, it dawned on me that this... Uh, I mean, I'd blown a whole lot of money on a magazine that I thought Tracks would have become if I'd stuck around at Tracks. It was called C Notes, and I think we did eight issues or seven issues. I can't Mm. remember now. Mm -hmm. And I blew a small inheritance and Mm -hmm. had to sell my house at Angari as well. Yeah, okay. You know, um, a catastrophe. Except shit happens, Mm. and so you get on with it. And uh, Mm. if that hadn't happened to me, then whatever happened next wouldn't have either. And Mm. I'm pretty good at coping. Copying it, sweet. <clears throat> Whatever's happened, and uh, mm. getting on with it. Yep, yep,
1: yeah. So um, with tracks, you were there for a couple of years with, yeah. with tracks, and, and you guys were part of the. You started it. So what Three was? Of us. Yeah. So so when you guys, what sort of happened there, or what was the reason for for leaving tracks or for moving on?
0: Well, the reason for doing it, mm. for, to go back just mm. a little further, yes. was. I'd got sacked from Surf International because mm-hmm. the magazine wasn't making any money and I mm-hmm. was getting the most from it. So I needed a job. Albie Foulson was working for Surfing World for Bob Evans and Albie wanted to do a film which would become Morning of the Earth. And so he needed a magazine to uh, promote ah, his I see. film. Okay. <coughs> so Albie and I mm-hmm. got together. Mm-hmm. The idea of Tracks as a tabloid was mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got David Elphick involved who worked for a uh, an Melbourne-based pop pop newspaper Mm -hmm. so it started essentially because i needed a job albie needed a magazine and david just had a boundless enthusiasm and um so we started a magazine with almost so little money so little money and yet it worked almost straight away so um that was fine and and we were going along and after the first few issues alba and i took turns in the issue and that's In doing an issue, he would do one and then I would do the next one. And that really suited me fine because I was still building the house at Angari and I was going to go back to university. And so I thought, I can do this, I can combine these things. Um, And then Albie and David basically hit me with an uh, ultimatum that they wanted to do another film. This was after Morning of the Earth had been such a success and David was the producer of it and Albie was the director and the cinematographer. And uh, they said, we want you to do the magazine full-time and we're going to do a new film. And there was no debate about it, no, how about, you know, we talk about this. They just hit me with it saying, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, I've never met an ultimatum that I couldn't tell to get fucked. (laughs) So that's what I did. And, and 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 with that intention and you're happy
1: with those decisions in hindsight... Because oh. did, so, what happened then? Did tracks just get handed over to somebody else, or no?
0: Albie and David, well, um, oh, they continued. They kept yeah. on doing. It. Okay, yeah, gotcha. And, um, yep. mm. uh, and then I think David eventually sold out to Albie, and mm. then went on through various owners and things like that. But, mm. um, I regretted it, and I mm. was, I was offended in the sense that it had been, it was really my concept, mm. a tabloid. That, that not only had surfing stuff in it, but had, you know, uh, music in it, that mm. had other political stuff in it and that yep. sort of thing, and was rude mm. and vulgar. Mm. Um, so I was sad about that, but mm. again, shit happens. Mm. So you sort of get on with it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, with copyright and that sort of thing, if you have an idea and, and something you, you're part of that creativity, you're part of generating that you know within yourself that you were the one that sort of helped design that, helped create that, part of that function.
0: I'm fine with that, but mm. it's interesting how the story gets retold. Mm. Um, Phil Jarrett was writing a story for Tracks, just literally. A, they're laying out the issue now, mm. and it's on Surf Media, and uh, Phil wrote in his story that um, Albie and David started Tracks to, to promote a film, and then they got John Witzig involved. And it,
1: mm. I mean... Had uh, the stories yet retold? Yeah, I uh, mean,
0: that mm. was just a complete mm. fabrication. Mm. And it was mm. absolutely, fundamentally wrong. Yeah. Fortunately, mm. Luke Kennedy, who's the editor of Tracks, and mm. I, get along pretty well, so he showed me the story mm. and uh, Phil rewrote that bit. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, mm. I was a bit surprised.
1: Yeah. A bit of a retelling of the, of the, of the narrative.
0: It was just mm. a reinvention, you know. Mm. I know history gets reinvented. Mm. The winners always... Get to tell the story, don't they? Yeah. I, mean, I, wasn't I, guess they the, do. I wasn't the winner in that sense. Mm. but at Well, least... I
1: mean, you can tell the story now. I don't know if I've got the same
0: following as, as Tracks Magazine, but. <laughs> no, it, 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 mm. it has been corrected. Yeah. You know, mm. And I can live with it because it doesn't matter. Yeah. In the end, it just doesn't
1: matter. No. What you
0: said before, that, you know, I know. You're content the role with
1: yourself and you're happy with yourself. I know yeah. the role
0: I played in that. Yeah. I know that absolutely well. I can remember it. Mm. Really, really well. So yeah. that's fun.
1: And so I guess um, i once again, like looking back on your Instagram and just all of the amazing photos that you that you have, the wilderness factory. Um, that obviously was a, a big part of the the morning of the earth, sort of filming with LB Valzon. You know, a lot of these these the famous kind of board builders that are in Australia kind of went through there or worked there. Was, did that have that sort of sense of magic or or beauty back then or was it just this old dilapidated house that people were making surfboards in because it's kind of like a <laughs> you know it's the same it's like this yeah. this uh ch- the church of surfing of Australian <laughs> surfing if you know what I mean you well know?
0: No, it was no mm. cathedral, let me assure you. <laughs> the house was falling to pieces and only literally got um, demolished a couple of years ago and the owners rebuilt it to the same design, which is really amazing. It's on the back road from here to Yamba, so I see it really regularly. But it was a good example of when surfboard, when surfers came to places like this and, or like Yamba and then... They, I mean, there were no jobs essentially um, around. You could go on the prawning trawlers or you could cut cane and both of them were way too hard work for most of the people I knew. Even the really hard workers hated both of those jobs. Um, and so they, the people who had had experience in the surfboard industry started these little sort of cottage industries like um, uh, wilderness. But wilderness started out as uh, country soul surfboards. Uh, that was Bob McTavish and Gary Keys, and then I think Baddie may have come in next. I forget the story. There's there. a bit of a yeah. There's a bit of a story, yes. and then then um, Brad Mays came in, and uh, Chris Brock. I can't remember exactly mm. how it went in the um, mm. the seekers
1: passed on. Somebody has a crack, and then goes, mm. "Blow this," I'm heading.
0: But it lasted Mm. for, you know, really quite a long time. And so, Mm. I mean, I think a really positive thing about surfers in in country Australia, things like that were. Mm. A guy called Dennis McPherson set up a factory at Angarry just up the road from where I was building my house. And he'd um, had experience on the south coast. And, uh, you know, that was was good for everybody. Mm. And it also showed the locals that we weren't all drug-taking dull bludgers. Some of us could actually work. Mm. Some of us did stuff. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny you say that my grandfather's a prawn fisherman and my other grandfather's a cane farmer so <laughs> I've, I've worked in both of those those jobs and yeah it's hard work
0: for sure <laughs> well it was still manual cane cutting mm. in those days in the mm. uh, early um early 70s mm. i remember dennis dennis trying it and
1: you get the hairy marries in your fingers we used to help Grandad plant cr- cane so we'd be feeding oh, yeah. the sticks of cane in and we'd be planting cane so yeah it's, it's hard work it's dirty work and but I mean, don't get me wrong. Making surfboards is, is hard work too, you know. I know. I was and, I and was around the fiberglass it. too. You oh. get the get the itchies from the fiberglass. And
0: I've mm. got a funny photograph of I think um I put, one of my friends, Nigel Coates, had, had shaped me board, and we were going to Western Australia, and uh, I had to sand it, so I went and sanded at Shane's factory at Brookvale, and um, I think Nigel took a picture of me, and I had you know had long sleeves with tape around. The the wrists, long pants with tape tape mm. around my ankles, mm-hmm. just to try, try and, and, and keep s- that bloody awful stuff away from me.
1: Well, the PPE didn't exist probably back then, like the the P two masks and the hearing protection and all that stuff. Didn't, none of the above was non-existent. Didn't have any of that. <laughs> so yeah. horrible, mm. absolutely horrible. So, what would you say with? Um, I guess the rise. Obviously, you're on Instagram and and social media. With the with the rise of all this stuff, would you say it's a a, a positive or a negative in terms of, I guess, surfing culture and 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 how, how does it benefit you? Do you think to have that direct reach with people because you're an independent artist or independent journalist now? So, how how do you think that it, it, is? It a good thing or a bad thing?
0: Well, I think it can be both really easily. <clears throat> I'm absolutely dismayed um, at when I read reports of how Facebook's used to bully children, kids. Mm. That's just hideous to me. And I've never had anything to do with Facebook, so I don't even know how it works. Mm. Uh, Instagram, I rather like because it's photographic, photograph-based and people don't have to read the words. I started writing stories right when I first started doing making posts. I, I wrote you know, 300-word stories mm. and I realised that Almost no one else did that. And mm. I don't care. It doesn't mm. matter. I don't care if people don't read them. And it's quite obvious with the comments sometimes that people don't read them because mm. they ask questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that you've written in the story. Uh, and and that's, nah. that's completely fine. Mm. Um, I make what's sort of laughably called an income by selling prints of my pictures. Mm. And um, I think it has helped that to some, some degree. But mm. by no means, I remember people telling me, oh, you know, you're big, easy you'll sell hundreds of prints mm. well that just doesn't work well right? there's
1: a lot of competition too because every now everybody's a bloody photographer or an artist or so there's it's also opened up pandora's box to every man and his dog having something that they want to try and sell or have a crack at you know yeah, well,
0: i don't make i don't almost make no emphasis about the selling side of it i'll mm. publicize exhibitions when i've got them mm. but i'm sort of send myself up a little bit and say, that, you know, here's the commercial break now. You, can, you don't have to read this. you, can, <laughs> you can just...
1: Well, I think that's a good idea too, is just to, to, to do what you love about it and not be trying to retail or sell something. And I'm offended could, when, when, I, mm, when I
0: see that done really blatantly. Yes. I don't like it at all. Yeah, yep, yep, It puts me off. Yep. But I get really good response um, mm. to, to the posts that I make. I mm. mean, you know, um, there can be 50 comments. Mm. on a post Mm. and there I answer every single one if I if I can occasionally I miss them but basically Mm. I answer every single um, comment that's made even if sometimes I don't understand them (laughs) yeah
1: no I think I think it's great and it really does I think it connects people you know all of a lot of my podcasts that I've done has been through people that I've that I've found through social media Without Instagram, there would have been no chance of us sort of sitting down and having a conversation. So I think that co- that connectivity is is unreal, and there is, like you said, a lot of pros, a lot of a lot of benefits to social media. But also, there is, you know, there's also probably a negative side to things as well. But in general, we all have all this access to so much information, and yeah. I think that's a good thing. You know,
0: well, I, I feel over overcome by the amount of information quite regularly. Mm. Now, I've just uh, um, I've discovered uh, there's an announcer now on classical FM in the morning, who I really like listening to. And so I'm, I've been an absolute obsessive sort of news and um, current affairs person for my whole life. Mm-hmm. But just recently, I've been uh, just listening to classical music in the morning instead of hearing about how fucked the world is. Yes, and it's sort of a mm-hmm. relief.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've did the same. I actually went off everything because it's the same thing. You can get so drawn into um the negativity and and the the news media is just so they're so good at just giving you all the the negative stuff and there's no positives you know they never give you the positive news
0: so i don't agree with you Mm. on that i Mm. I think it's there but you've Mm. got to go looking for it that's Mm. for sure Mm. oh well what do you do (laughs) (laughs) whatever
1: (laughs) Mm. you got a beautiful place out here mate this is a, a nice little sort of sanctuary in the in the trees, so yeah, it's, it's a, probably hard to get uh, upset out here or or depressed. Seems um, like a pretty pretty. Occasionally, relaxing... occasionally,
0: it gets me, gets me. I mean, things get me down, but but mm. broadly speaking, no, I, I'm happy here, which is really nice. It, mm. it is. It's like a refuge for me. Mm. Um, I can not go out um, for a few days, and I don't mind in the least.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I've sort of got a lot of surrounded by trees. I'm on my acreage, and it's nice. It's nice to have a little bit of peace and quiet. And, yeah. And get away from the world. So, are you? Do you still shoot? Are you still working with photography? And are you doing digital or film? Uh, I've I've had digital
0: um, for oh shit, how many years? At one stage, all my film cameras were stolen. The whole whole lot was was taken. And uh, in a way, it was a relief. You know, I was sick of karting. I had a motor drive Nikon F two. I had a, a Nikon F. I think I had five lenses and the whole thing you know, was within a little bag, boxes. that you going to just, I was so jack of carting it around, mm. and so I got myself one, well first I, I got a, a film camera because um, well, someone gave it to me, uh, with a zoom lens, and just so I had one body, one lens, and that was all I had, and I thought, shit, I'd rather this, then I dropped it in a lake in uh, Sri Lanka, so that <laughs> <laughs> Dead, dead mm. camera, and lens never recovered either. But um, then I got, eventually, I got a, a good digital Nikon with one good zoom lens, and, and it's it's a it's just a relief mm. to um to just be able to hold everything in, in one hand, mm. you know, and I really like it. But all I do is I just document my own life. Yes. Um, you know, mm. we've sort of got back to the very beginning here. Mm. Uh, I take pictures of the animals that um, are around here. Um, I sometimes take pictures of um, the food that I make, <laughs> my lunch or my dinner. Uh, when I travelled a lot, which I did quite a lot for something like 30 years, I was doing design and production on big illustrated books and I used to go to uh, Singapore to do press checks and then I'd go somewhere interesting in Asia. So I got to see quite a lot of Southeast Asia. And I, I took a lot of photographs there. I don't take much now in my... My Nikon's carved at the moment, and I can't afford to get it fixed. So mm-hmm. I've got a little point-and-shoot um, Canon, which is, actually does an amazing job. Mm. But I don't like a camera that's that big. It's too Somewhere. small. It's too small, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I've mm. also got an inherited tremor. So mm. uh, with a big camera, I can sort of hold it steady easier mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. I can with a little thing. I, mean, yep. I, don't, I don't like the little cameras much.
1: Yeah, it's funny how, once again, everything goes around in... Um revolutions you know and there's a lot of people shooting again with film I know. and I mean myself included I, I love shooting with film and it's just the time thing and, and having that time and, and being able to you know if you're going on holidays or whatever make sure you got the, the film and then you got to go buy film because your film's out of date because you haven't used it for you know <sighs> so every time you got to go buy a couple new rolls of film and then you got to find somewhere to develop it because <laughs> there's less and less people developing your film these days and but I'm eventually going to get to the point of putting a little dark room in, in the back of a shipping container that I have and um, I think there's just something magic about developing photos it is magic it you is. Know, absolutely. It, is you're magic. literally watching them sort of form in front of you and it's yeah. that chemical reaction that is kind of similar to glassing a surfboard you know and 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 getting that that catalyst and that resin to mix up to get to get a, a, a chemical reaction to occur to, to to create something you know yeah and it's yeah. the same it's the same as as you know developing a photo there's just some beauty there's some beauty to a dark room that you kind of miss with um with shooting with a with it with a digital camera you know that that process
0: i loved it i loved it mm-hmm. for a long time i'd only ever had one Purpose-built darkroom ever in my whole life. Mm. Um, I used to use laundries or spare rooms or whatever mm. bathrooms. But a house at Nollumbimbi that I had before I came down here, and it had a purpose-built darkroom. And I realised when I left there because that's I'd already actually got a digital camera by then. Mm. And I'm thinking, I think that's the last that's darkroom the I'll ever have. Yeah. and that's okay. It, yeah. It's fine. I still, mm. you know, if when I shoot, when I was shooting a lot of pictures, I would, um, I've got a, an adequate. Colour printer, it, it has no archival quality, but it mm. doesn't print it prints colour actually quite well. And mm. so I do, you know, twenty prints, and I'd spread them out on the table exactly the way I used to do when mm. I worked in the darkroom. Dry them, and then I would spread them out. Mm. So there's some similarities still between mm. them Yeah, but I encourage you to, to get a darkroom. It's really great. It is. It's yeah. It's exciting.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a beautiful thing, and it's it's hard to say whether it's going to have that sustenance whether it's still going to be happening in 20 30 years if you're still going to be able to buy film but i get the feeling you will you know it's the same with records you know i think there's always going to be a bit of a subculture for those you know listening to, to a classic album on a record even though you can you can listen to stuff on spotify or on itunes or, or digital i don't know i still think this is something and who knows i, I hope that it holds out and, and I'm, i think it will I think there's a collectability to it you know and there's a there's a process to it it's magic you know so and even li- listening to your stories talking about losing film and you know just the
0: the,
1: the stories to all that you know the, the story to that photo it's, it, it's just they're all beautiful little stories uh john is there anything else if, if i'm a aspiring photojournalist or, or photographer is there anything that you, you would you would want to leave with say, a young person that's looking to get into or, or sort of follow in the, in the footsteps of what, what you're doing?
0: Oh, I just encourage you. Encouragement is the only thing. I just encourage you to do it. Or to anyone just to do it.
1: Get out there, get amongst it. Do it. Yeah, explore, adventure. Yeah, you can, mm.
0: everyone, it seems to me, really a lot of people will be generous with their experience and will help you along the way if you're just going to have a go at it.
1: Good on you, mate. And where can people find your photos and sort of look you up online, that sort of thing?
0: Uh, I've got a website which is johnwoodseagulloneword dot uh, com dot au, and uh, it's got a whole bunch of bunch of my pictures. Or uh, on Instagram, I'm just at johnwoodseagull again. All one word.
1: And I'll I'll leave a link to those two things in the in the bio of the podcast as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, John. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. <laughs>